0: Well, in a couple of months, we're going to celebrate one of our most cherished and distinctively American national holidays. And by that, I'm referring, of course, to Black Friday, as we all are going to pile out to the stores and stand in line to buy a bunch of uh, plastic merchandise. Millions of people will line up for headphones and blenders and camp chairs and discounted socks and big screen TVs and phone cases In some cases, people will stand in line for hours in order to get their hands on the stuff they think they need. And of course, grown adults will fight like toddlers trying to get the last vacuum cleaner. And I really don't understand personally the lengths people will go to to get what they think they need. And and, and they must think they need the stuff if they're going to go to such extreme lengths to get it. When Ashley and I were in college, there was a Sheets gas station that opened up not far from uh, the college itself. And for the grand opening, at first, I think it was 20 or maybe 50 customers through the door would each get a $100 gas gift card. Which, that's pretty nice. I mean, I wouldn't mind having $100 in free gas. But the students went out. I can't remember if they went out the night before or just ridiculously early in the morning. But they stood in line for hour after hour. I don't think the store opened until like 9 a.m. And so they're out there in the cold, in the dark, standing in line waiting. And I can tell you this, I was not among them. Again, uh, a free gas would be nice, but I'm not going to stand out there all night. People really think they must need this stuff to stand in line for hours. If that's the case, I think we really need to reevaluate what we think of as needs. Don't we? You know, there are many things which we might classify as needs, and rightfully so. For instance, I would stand in line for hours if it meant getting medical attention for one of my kids. There, there's places in the world where people will stand in line for hours just to get a small morsel of food. And those are certainly more needful than a big screen TV. But even then, some of our needs are greater than others. So let me ask the question this morning, and the one I want us to kind of contemplate together. What pressing needs do you have? Think about it. What is it that you need this morning? Is it a medical need of some kind? I need, I need this pain to go away. I need some kind of healing. Is it material? Is it something that you, you need to kind of get by? Maybe, uh, maybe things are tight, and a little extra cash would go a long way. Or is your need spiritual? I want to take a a moment and think about that. What is your greatest need this morning? And and again, as you think about it, kind of catalog it in your mind. Think, what is it that if God gave me and answered my prayer this morning, what would I pray for? If If God promised, I will give you one thing, what would you ask for? The truth is, some needs are very important, and they warrant someone going to great lengths. In our text this morning, we're going to find four friends who go to great lengths to help someone in need. And they don't just stand in line for hours, they actually cut in line. In Mark chapter 2, it's a very familiar story from the Gospels, the account of a paralytic lowered through the roof. And I found as I was studying the passage, it's kind of a difficult passage to preach because there's so much in here to talk about. I mean, We could have a whole sermon on the faith of these men. And Jesus even recognizes their faith in verse 5. We could talk about the unbelief of the Pharisees. We could focus on Jesus' response. We could even talk about the relationship of sin and sickness, which comes up in the passage. However, as I studied, this one truth kind of rose to the surface. Jesus is able to meet our true needs. Jesus is able to meet our true needs. And that word true is important because like kids, we sometimes call things needs which are really wants, right? Christ, however, because he is God with us, is able to meet our truest needs. I'd like us to see it in the text, and I want to read through the whole passage together again as we get started. Let me start in verse 1, and let's walk through this. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man blaspheme like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit they had reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. What an incredible scene this is. So much to talk about, but I'd like to make a couple of observations with regard to uh, the idea that Jesus is able to meet our true needs. First one is this, our needs are not always what they seem. Our needs are not always what they seem. In fact, I would dare say that quite often we misidentify our needs. Sometimes we call things that we want things that we need. And sometimes we classify as our greatest need something that is, in fact, not the most important. The fact is, our needs are not always what they seem. I'm sure you've had this experience where you felt like you needed something, and you you probably at the the time would have said, yes, I need that. And maybe looking back on it, you say, you know what? I'm kind of glad I didn't get it. That really wasn't the thing that I needed most. Think, for example, of Paul in the New Testament. He talks about his thorn in the flesh, which whatever that was, he, in his mind, needed it gone. In fact, so much so that he prays three times for the Lord to remove it. So in Paul's mind, this thorn, I need it out of here. And yet God knows that what Paul really needs is not the thorn gone, he needs grace to endure it. And that's what God gives. He doesn't meet what Paul thinks he needs. He gives him what he really needs, grace, to keep going. And that's what we see here in this passage. The chapter begins here with Jesus returning to Capernaum. You'll see it in verse 1. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days. So for some undisclosed period of time, Jesus is traveling through Galilee. He's preaching and teaching in the various villages. He's healing people. He's driving out demons and so forth. And then after some days, he comes back to Capernaum, which was his base of operations. This was command central for Jesus. And there he returns. Now, you might remember at the end of chapter 1, Jesus was having some problems. As his fame spread, more and more villages were off limits to him. Not because they didn't want him, but because the crowds would just swarm in. He can't go anywhere without massive throngs around him. So it says he entered Capernaum after some days. Now, it doesn't say it here exactly, but I kind of suspect Jesus might have sneaked back into Capernaum. After all these crowds are bustling around and everybody's wanting to know where Jesus is, he probably comes in, maybe even by cover of darkness, into Capernaum and returns to the house where he's staying there. But the secret doesn't stay secret for long. You notice at verse 1, and it was heard that he was in the house. So the gossip chain spreads through Capernaum just like it does in most small towns and word gets out. Jesus is back. Now you notice also it says he was in the house. The most reasonable explanation here is it's probably Peter's house. That's likely where Jesus was staying. And that's probably a good guess. Nevertheless, when Jesus gets back to Capernaum, he's mobbed. However, You'll notice what happens in verse 2. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. This huge crowd forms. Everybody flocks to Peter's house. Everybody wants to see Jesus. And even though Peter's house was probably large enough to contain Christ and the 12 disciples, it's not large enough for the entire city of Capernaum. It's not large enough for everybody in the outlying areas. This huge crowd forms, and they force themselves, apparently, into Peter's house. Now, of course, Jesus does what he always does, right? Verse 2, he preached the word to them. So this crowd forms, they come in, and the Bible says here they there was no room for them, not even near the door. So this is a packed house, standing room only. People are all there to see Jesus, shoulder to shoulder, I mean, If you're claustrophobic, you probably didn't want to show up to this event. They're in there like sardines. Even the doorways are filled. All of that, however, is background to the main story, which starts in verse 3. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now the drama starts. Four men are introduced here. Well, five, really, including the paralytic. And that's who I want to start with as we walk through this. Number one, there's a helpless man. There's one helpless man. Verse three, he's referred to as a paralytic. He's being carried. Now, we know almost nothing about him, where he came from, what his name was, how long he had been in this condition. What we do know is he's absolutely helpless, it may be that he was actually a paraplegic in terms of he, he may not have had use of his arms or legs. If he had his arms, maybe he could have dragged himself to Jesus. But at this point, he needs to be carried. The only way this paralytic is going to find his way to Jesus is if somebody takes him there physically. We could say that he is probably a very needy person. If, in fact, he didn't have use of his arms, he literally could not even feed himself himself. Somebody would have to turn him over. Someone would have to feed him. Someone would have to take him to the bathroom. Someone would have to do virtually everything for him. And all of this at a time when, well, culture was just not that easy for someone with a disability. They didn't have wheelchairs or automatic doors or things like that. And so it would have been very difficult. No doubt he felt himself to be a burden to others. Again, we don't even know how this happened. Perhaps it was a farming accident. Maybe it was a fall of some kind that had left him in this condition. Maybe it had even been years he had been like this. So I wanted to to kind of think, how did this man feel? What was sort of his frame of mind? I imagine there was probably some hopelessness. Now many of you are are familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, so I pulled out her autobiography, Johnny, just to sort of get my head into this space here of what this man was experiencing and what it was like. Johnny Erickson Todd, of course, was injured in a diving accident where she broke her neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. And she describes her journey through, uh, through all the medical procedures and all that, but also her journey of faith in her autobiography. But at, at a dark moment, at a low point in her life, this is what she writes in her autobiography. Quote, I desperately wanted to kill myself. Here I was, trapped in this canvas cocoon. I couldn't move anything except my head. Physically, I was little more than a corpse. I had no hope of ever walking again. I could never lead a normal life. I had absolutely no idea how I could find purpose or meaning in just existing day after day, waking, eating, watching TV, sleeping. Why on earth should a person be forced to live out such a dreary existence? How I prayed for some accident or miracle to kill me. The mental and spiritual anguish was unbearable. As unbearable as the physical torture. And maybe that's this paralytic. Maybe he was in that same frame of mind. Man, if I, if I just had the use of my arms, I would, I would take my own life. What, what kind of existence is this? And I imagine he probably went through that kind of despair. The paralytic lacked many things, but he did have one very valuable possession. He had good friends. So we see one helpless man. We also see four faithful friends in verse 3. They came to him, and he's carried by four men. Now, they had obviously heard, like everyone else, that Jesus was in town. They also knew that Christ had healed many people in very similar circumstances. Now, I don't know why they hadn't come to Jesus before. Maybe they had tried and been turned away, but there's no doubt this time they are determined to get their friend to Jesus. Likewise, we've also seen Jesus healing people in Capernaum already in Mark. Why, why wasn't he first in line? My guess is this man may have lived outside of Capernaum. These four guys may have carried this guy miles to get to Capernaum. Again, that's some dedication. Let me just say, these are the friends that you want to have. And these are the kind of friends you want to be. The kind who carry their friend to Jesus. They get there, but there's an obstacle. You notice that verse 4? When they got there, they could not come near him because of the crowd. So they get there, there's people everywhere, the the place is packed. You can't even get in the doorway. Even if you were a, a pretty slim person, you would have a hard time Squeezing through the crowd much less if you're four guys in a stretcher There's no way they're getting into the house They would have to come up with something else but that's where we're introduced to their audacious plan I I really want to know which of the four guys here was the think outside the box person Because they all get there and they probably just felt despair like We came all this way to see jesus and we can't even get through the door and one of the guys says, no, wait a second, I got an idea. It's going to be a little crazy. It's a little harebrained, but I think we can pull it off. Now, to understand what happened next, we have to know a little bit about ancient architecture. So houses in ancient Galilee typically had a flat roof, and uh, which is still true today. Most houses in Israel will have a flat roof. Now, it, there's a slight pitch to it, so the rain will run off, and there's drains and things like that. But... The main reason is that you could use the roof space. It was treated kind of like you might treat a deck at your house. You, know, you entertain people out there. You sit out there when the breeze and it's nice outside, especially in the hot months in Galilee. I mean, a little breeze coming in on the roof felt nice, and so people would sit up there. They would pray up there. Sometimes they would even sleep up there. I don't know, but maybe people went up there to work on their tan in ancient times. I don't know. But the point is, they had that space, and it was usable space. And oftentimes, it was connected by an outdoor staircase. So rather than having the stairs inside the house, like we typically do, it was outside. That way you don't have to have a door or opening to get up on the roof. So no doubt these men are looking at the situation, seeing the crowd, and the one guy sees the the stairs on the side of the house and says, wait a second, I think I've got an idea. So they take their friend up onto the roof. Verse 4. When they came near, they, just, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So they go up on the roof, determined to reach Jesus, and they begin their demolition project. And don't be deceived. <laughs> this is a demolition project, okay? Uh, it's not like they just pulled a few palm branches out of the way and lowered him down. Okay, the, the roof would have been sort of a thatch roof. But then it would have had packed clay on top. And of course, there were were wood or stone beams down beneath supporting the roof. So to get through this floor, you would have had to, I mean, not quite a jackhammer, but you would have had to chip away at all that hardened clay. I mean, it was hard enough to walk on. And in fact, if you look at verse four, when it says they uncovered the roof where he was, it literally reads in the Greek, they dug into the roof. This would have been like breaking ground. It would have been very destructive, by the way, which I think, again, demonstrates how far they're willing to go to help their friend. Because this is some major property damage. Number one, even today, you know, your roof on your house is one of the most, you know, single biggest expenses. I don't know if that was the case in ancient Israel or not, but they tear into this thing. And they were going to be liable for paying for it or at least fixing it. But all that mattered to them was reaching Christ and seeing their friends' needs met. So I'm not sure how they did this, but they determined where Jesus was. And again, maybe they put their ear to the, the roof and listened in. But it says they found where he was, and they opened up the roof above him. So Jesus is preaching. The crowd is all there. They're, they're intent and listening. And suddenly they hear this scratching and scraping. And everybody starts kind of like looking around. And then pretty soon... A fist just punches through the roof, and everybody 's you know gasps and, and what, you know what 's going on, and light streams through the hole and I, At that point, I think the sermon was pretty much over like i don 't think anybody was was listening they 're all kind of looking up at this point, and piece by piece, the roof starts to come off and I really want to if this was in fact peter 's house, I wonder what Peter was doing when all this is happening, because I, I kind of picture him standing there and, and looking up and being like, no, 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 that's, that's my roof, stop, get off, you know, you're going to pay for this, well, I hope, I hope he had some good homeowner's insurance, but as, as the light kind of streams down through this hole, they see a mattress being lowered, and on it, this scrawny man, you know, this would have been a very memorable day, wouldn't it What did Jesus think? What did he do? And that's where I want to get to this last thought here, his surprising response. Jesus says something that is unexpected. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. First off, you'll notice Jesus saw their faith, and it says their faith, which probably includes the paralytic, but also the four friends. I personally think that Jesus was pretty pleased, not because of the property damage, but because of the faith of these men who would stop at nothing to get to Jesus. Let me, let me just say this as sort of an aside about the faith of these men. They would not allow any obstacle to stop them. You know, the door's packed, no problem, let's check the window. window's closed, let's get up on the roof. I don't know, it just surprises me sometimes how people, how people allow obstacles to stand between them and faith in Christ. It's like, well, you know, I, I might be interested, but what are people going to think of me? What's my family going to say? You know, how, how, how am I going to be perceived if I follow Christ? I think Jesus is pleased with these men because they see the need they look at their friends and say, he's so needy, we, we're going to stop at nothing to get to Jesus. Maybe the problem with people who are looking at the obstacles is they're not really seeing Jesus as the, the supreme one who can meet their needs. Instead, they're thinking of, hmm, how, how is this going to make me look? How is this going to make me feel? How, what price is there going to be for me if I follow Jesus? Nevertheless, he sees their faith and he says something remarkable. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're one of the men on the roof, you might be scratching your head a little bit. Say, I didn't carry this guy eight miles to Capernaum, tear a roof open and lower him down just to have Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I, I was expecting a miracle here. Like, can't you see the man's legs don't work? Jesus, maybe you should try and do a healing here instead of just a, an absolution of sins. he's a paralytic. I mean, everybody in the room must have been thinking, this is a little odd. You know, son, your sins are forgiven you. He needs to be healed. And that's where I want to get back to our main thought here. Our needs are not what they seem. His needs weren't. The spiritual, unseen needs of a person are the central concern of Jesus. And to him, those needs are far greater than the physical needs. So here's a man who's a paralytic, paraplegic, whatever whatever he was. And to everybody's senses, he's a man who's in great need. He needs to be healed. And Jesus says, no, he needs to be forgiven. This is one of those areas where we mis, misjudge our needs. Think, man, I, I need the Lord to fix this. I need the Lord to change this. I need the Lord to you know, bring about these circumstances in my life. But if you've not been forgiven of your sins, if you are, as Jesus said, yet in your sins, what does it matter? Because your ultimate need is to be right with God. If you're not right with God, then what difference does it make? All of it. And so Jesus is able to see a person's real needs. You know, I, I kind of wonder what the paralytic thought of Jesus' words. Was he confused? Sins? What sins? What are you talking about? I half expect, and, and I, maybe I'm giving the guy the benefit of the doubt here. I half expect the paralytic, lying on his back with all this time to think, perhaps had been rehearsing in his mind, you know, "What have I done?" You know, and maybe, maybe as he goes through all these bitter emotions and anger, he's kind of come around to realizing, you know what? I am a sinner. Why would God ever love me? Why would God ever want me? And maybe for him to hear your sins are forgiven would have been the greatest blessing of all. Jesus knew that was what he really needed. Not just the healing, not just the, the physical aspect, but the spiritual forgiveness. Oscar Wilde once wrote, in this world there are two tragedies. One is not getting what you want. The other is getting what you want. You know, and so often that's true. Because we think we know what we need and we, we desperately want it. That's, that's what we're after. However, the tragedy is sometimes we miss out on what we really need. Often what God is doing in our lives is spiritual. And who of us stops and thinks, man, my greatest need, and as, we, as even we thought this morning, as, as I asked you at the beginning, what's, what's your greatest need this morning? Who of us thought, I need to be free from sin? My greatest need is to love Christ more. My greatest need is to grow in the Lord. I think oftentimes we we go back to the physical. I already mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata. If you ran into her today, I I almost guarantee if you asked her, she would tell you that God has met all her needs. Yet if you look down, she's still in a wheelchair. She's still a paraplegic. So you might think, Here's Johnny Erickson, somebody still needs to feed her. Somebody still needs to take her to the bathroom. Somebody still needs to do everything for her. How can she say God has met her needs? Well, she's been forgiven. Listen, Listen to what she writes in the preface to her book. I have found that God knows my needs infinitely better than I know them. And he is utterly dependable no matter which direction our circumstances take us. And that's a great thought. And one that leads us right into the next point I want to make. Not only are our needs not always what they seem, Jesus is the only one who can meet our needs. Jesus is the only one who can meet our needs. When you think about that, that is an astounding claim, isn't it? I mean, if I told you I am able to meet all of your needs, you would would probably be a little bit incredulous, right? You'd probably step back and say, well, okay, you might meet... Some things that I need, but a person's needs are complex, aren't they? I mean, we have uh, needs for security and belonging and and lots of things. And not to mention the spiritual needs of forgiveness and righteousness, etc. So for someone to say, I can meet all your needs, that's quite a claim. And yet that's a claim I can confidently make of Christ. He can meet all your needs. He is the only one who can satisfy not only our body, but our soul. And that's really the claim made in Capernaum that day. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And that was a statement which stirred up controversy. Let's look at it. Verse 5, he says, your sins are forgiven. There's six. Some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man blaspheme like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right here, we see the beginning of religious conflict the beginning of religious conflict. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry has been met with enthusiasm and excitement. Crowds are flocking to him to be healed. People are amazed at his teaching. But here, for the first time, Mark introduces the religious conflict which would dog Jesus' steps for most of his ministry. In fact, the entire rest of Mark 2 is centered around these conflicts. So Jesus is in the synagogue he makes this declaration and the religious leaders protest you notice the scribes in verse six are sitting there and they're not saying anything out loud but they're reasoning in their hearts as soon as jesus says these words they're sort of taken aback and in their minds they're thinking this is blasphemy this is blasphemy i mean this man is saying he can forgive sins And the scribes are partially correct here. If a mere man comes along and says, I have the power to forgive someone's sins, and they're just a man, well, then they've claimed godhood. They are blaspheming. And so what they saw was a a Galilean carpenter from Nazareth claiming to forgive sins. Now, you might think, Aren't we, aren't we all supposed to forgive sins? Like, what's, what's the big deal here about this? Well, yes, we can forgive sins if people sin against us, right? If somebody comes along and bumps into me or shoves me or whatever, and then later they come back and say, you know what, I was, I was, kind, of, I was kind of mean to you there. Will you forgive me? I can say, I forgive you because the offense was against me. Now, imagine if they pushed you. And then I walked up and said, I forgive you for pushing them. You'd be like, excuse me? (laughs) You know, the the offense wasn't against you. And here he's saying to the man, your sins are forgiven you. This man's not sinned against Jesus directly. What Jesus is saying is, you have broken God's holy law, I forgive you. The only person who has that right is God himself, because he's the offended party. It's his law that's broken. And Jesus is taking that position. You've broken God's law, you are forgiven. They got it, and I think the scribes are, are on the right track here, but they don't come to the right conclusion, do they? Because to them, Jesus is just a mere man. They're right when they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? We have, however, not only the beginning of religious conflict, but also the confirmation of Christ's power. Confirmation of Christ's power. Jesus could really forgive sins. He really can meet our deepest need. Look at how he responds, verse 8. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? Christ knew what these scribes were thinking. Now, we don't necessarily need... To assume that Jesus read their minds or used divine omniscience here, it may be that Jesus is just a very perceptive person. You know, he says your sins are forgiven, and they're all kind of this puzzled expression on their face. Think about it like this: uh, if you ever read uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes is this master of deduction. And it's almost like magic because somebody will walk into Sherlock Holmes' office and he'll, he'll tell them like an essay about themselves. And they're always stunned and amazed. You know, how did you know that about me? And, you know, he's like, well, you know, your shoes are scuffed on this side and your lapel is slightly, you know, uh, bent on this side and it tells me this. And it's the powers of deduction. It's almost magic the way he does it. And yet, when he finishes explaining, you can see how he, he put the pieces together. So it's very possible Jesus could have just... Put the pieces together. He had just said, I can forgive sins. The scribes are looking confused. He kind of knows where they're going. However, there seems to be more than just Jesus as Sherlock Holmes. There seems to be something divine here, even in the way. Because it says, he perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. So to some degree, what, what we do know is that Jesus anticipates and he knows their complaint. And he says, why do you reason about these things in your heart? The problem with Jesus' statement here, your sins are forgiven, is the fact that it is non-falsifiable. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. I mean, I can walk around just telling people your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And there's no way to really test that, is there? I mean, unless you could walk into heavenly courts and see the records of your sin being wiped away, who's to say whether a person's forgiven or not? And so they assume he's just saying it. And by the way, again, another little aside here. A lot of the religions in the world are all non-falsifiable. Do you know that? A lot of uh, world religions don't make claims that you can test. Like Buddha, for instance. You know, Buddha has a bunch of sayings that if you live by them, you know, they're wisdom sayings or whatever. And you can't really test any of them to prove them true or false necessarily. You can just accept them or not. Christianity is a little different, though, because it's falsifiable. The claim is based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it's not true. There's actually a a level of historical reliability that has to be true. It has to have happened, or the gospel itself isn't true. And the same is true in this story, by the way. Because Jesus doesn't just leave it as sort of a... You know, he just walks around claiming people's sins are forgiven. He uses this brilliant greater to lesser argument. He loses it in verse 9. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because you can just say it. But if I say to somebody, rise, take up your bed and walk, it doesn't matter how many times I say it. If they're paralyzed, they're not going to get up, right? So obviously that's the harder of the two. So Jesus is basically saying, listen, if I can can heal a man who is a paralytic, then you can trust me that I can forgive sins. So he proves it to them. He turns to the paralytic and says, rise, take up your bed, go to your house. And what does the Bible say? Immediately. Immediately he arose. No lag time, no recovery period, no physical therapy. He just launches to his feet. And away he goes. And the people, it says, were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I bet they hadn't. But the more amazing thing in the story is the fact that it proves Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. Not not just that he can give healing. Yes, he can. He can meet our needs for health if if he chooses to. But oftentimes, God is... really meeting our deepest needs, our greatest needs, and he's the only one who can. He's the one we must turn to, the only one who can forgive, who can heal, who can redeem and restore. He alone is able to meet our deepest needs. Sometimes in two people get married, there's this wrongheaded notion that, oh, my spouse, you know, my wife, my husband... It's going to be, you know, it's going to fulfill me, meet all my needs. And, you know, it's just going to be bliss. And then reality kicks in. And it's very true that, you know, in in some sense, a husband and wife uh, meet one another's needs. But no one can do what Christ can do. And And if a husband is expecting a wife to meet all of his needs and basically be as Christ to him, it's not going to turn out well. See, only Christ is able to meet All of our needs. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only one. That, That statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, in other words, everything you could need is in me. As the old saying goes, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist, but our greatest need was forgiveness. God sent us a savior. You see, the Lord meets all of our needs, and and yes, he can meet our needs physically. He sent manna in the wilderness to the children of Israel. He gave bread to the crowds. He gave healing to people who were sick. Sometimes we might think those are our greatest needs, food, health, money, but Jesus is interested in meeting our greatest needs. So I bring us back to it. The question I asked earlier, what is it that you need? What is it that, that if God could give it to you right now, you'd say, yes, I want that? Is it physical healing? Maybe there's a relationship in your life that's been broken that needs to be restored. Maybe you just feel like you need a break from the hectic pace of life. Maybe you want people to respect or notice you more. That's what you feel like you need that. Well, I dare say that many of our needs are not what they seem. Maybe I should ask this in a slightly different way. What would the Lord say is your biggest need? If God looked and said, here's what you need, read. It's not that you need that thorn in the flesh taken away. It's that you need some more grace in your life. I bet if we ask that question, what does the Lord See as our biggest need i almost I almost guarantee that it would be spiritual, not physical. What we need is forgiveness. What we need is righteousness. What we need is endurance and patience. What we need is love and hope and faith. I could say with absolute certainty, no matter what other conditions are present in your life, if you 've never come to the point where you have trusted. In Christ, confess your sin and cast yourself on his mercy. Your greatest need this morning is salvation. You need to be forgiven. You need to be right with God. Like the paralytic, you need your sins forgiven. You've broken God's law. And there's a price to pay. But in Christ, the debt of sin has been paid upon the cross. And There's nothing left to do except receive the free gift. But if you've already... Have that confidence. If you've trusted in Christ and experienced God's forgiveness, well, what's your greatest need? It may not be what you think. It may not be what you think. The question might better be asked, what does God want to do in me? What does God want to do in me?